Hello and welcome to Sprogcast, a radio show all about pregnancy, birth and early parenting, hosted by Karen Hall and Mark Harris and supported by Pinter and Martin. I'm Mark Harris and this is episode 11 of Sprogcast, a podcast about pregnancy, birth and early parenthood. Sprogcast is brought to you by our sponsor Pinter and Martin, an independent publishing company specialising in pregnancy, birth and parenting, psychology, nutrition and yoga at pinterandmartin.com. Today's episode is a treasure chest of interesting things in which we discuss the recent Lancet article about breastfeeding and two amazing interviews about having twins with midwife Virginia House and doula Mars Lord. And I'm going to be chatting about all this with Karen Hall. Hi, Karen. Hi, Mark. Are you feeling better? I'm convinced it was the flu, Karen. Yeah, that's pretty bad. You know, you know, men get colds worse than women. Uh huh. I'm feeling hunky-dory. Good. I had it at the same time I was in bed all day on Sunday. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, maybe you're telling me that. Are you feeling better? Yeah, mostly. Yeah. So, Karen, what's the news? Well, we've got some exciting stuff going on in terms of what we're doing with Sprogcast. So we've got press passes for the Doola UK conference, which I think is on the 19th of March, and the Association of Breastfeeding Mothers conference, which I'm very excited about in Birmingham in June. So we'll be taking the microphone and just talking to people. You say we've got press passes, Karen. It's true. It's only me, isn't it? Yeah. I'm busy on those dates, actually. They did offer. But yes, I think that the delegates would be too overwhelmed by having you there again. <laughs> we say it every time. We love feedback. So come and talk to us on facebook.com slash broadcast or get in contact on Twitter at Sprogcast. You know, we have had people comment on our Facebook page. We've had a few, haven't we? Yeah, we've had Hayley Bird. She, she says, I'm training as a doula and I'm working my way through your shows in no particular order. Fascinating stuff. I love it. Well, thanks, Hayley. We appreciate that. And Emma Gleave uh, suggested a Twitter listening party. What on earth is that? They'd be like, right, on 8 o'clock on the 25th of February, we're all going to listen to Sprogcast and we're all going to tweet about it. Oh, let's do that. I, I love that. I mean, that's just like getting our tribe together. There is something to be said for doing collectively in time and space. You know, well, not yeah. necessarily space, but within time. Um, I like that idea. Can you can you sort that, Producer can I Karen? Sort it out? Yes, boss. <laughs> We've also got a comment from Catherine Kaczynski, which was oh. just couple of days ago she wrote i just listened to the women's hour program on breastfeeding what a total disappointment who chose the expert misleading misinformed what a missed opportunity would love you to discuss it on the next episode do you know what i missed the first 15 minutes doing free breastfeeding support yeah (laughs) are you one of those are you one of those breastfeeding supporters that think breastfeeding's the be all and the end all no i read their letter in response to um concerns about the experts they had on apparently that expert is one that doesn't believe that breastfeeding is the be all and the end all apparently so which is good because that's pretty much the only thing she's got in common with the rest of us (laughs) my main objection is that they present her as an expert which you know for the rest of us just the use of the word expert is the i was going to say you despise the use of the word expert because none of us are are we we can't know better than somebody else what that experience they're having is we can know stuff and we can share it with them and we can listen we've we've got skills in various 
helping strategies, but to, to call yourself an expert just makes it like, oh, I'm better than you, you silly little mother. I, I take your point. I mean, at the heart of most communication problems is that we, we hallucinate that our experience is the same as someone else's, mm. you know, and then it leads to all kinds of um, pr- presumed ways of responding to people instead of an openness to receive what you're what what's coming in in terms of what the other person is offering you uh, apparently one of the people on it has, has written a book called guilt-free bottle feeding no that wasn't somebody on the show wasn't it they referred no. to the book didn't they i have read the book well tell me tell me what you think about that book I had a, um, to use your word, a visceral reaction to that book. Yeah. While I was reading it, I read it over a few days and I was so unpleasant. Then I really was meaner than Vanessa Feltz to everyone around me for about three days because that book just put me in a state of mind of utter misery. It was a horrible book to read because the author Madeline Morris um, has obviously had an utterly horrible experience with yeah. breastfeeding. Yeah. And her feelings are that that book is just soaked in her feelings and it's very personal and yet throughout the book she's saying oh this isn't personal this isn't about my story but my story was this and she sets up straw man after straw man and it is things like breastfeeding counselors believe the the breastfeeding is the be all and end all and we won't countenance any other option and um she talks about how um we're in it for the money because breastfeeding support is such big business Mm -hmm. and i can hear breastfeeding supporters all over the country just sniggering bitterly into their coffee right now Um, yeah (laughs) if only there was a lot of money in doing this (laughs) it would be the perfect job yeah I, i i mean as human beings we cannot not live in in the experience of the stories we're telling ourselves about life occurring. So there's a sense in which she couldn't have written any other kind of book Mm. because her her deep story that I have compassion for has generated her experience of life around feeding her baby. Yeah. Oh, gosh, you read it with compassion, but you read it thinking, I really wish you hadn't put this out there. Yeah, no, I get that. Uh, the open letter stimulated by The Lancet is, is interesting. You know, it, it comes to the conclusion that the breastfeeding crisis in the UK is in fact a crisis of a lack of support yeah. for those mothers who choose breastfeeding. And, and that is so crucial. It's crucial for many reasons. But when you look at the research that suggests that women that choose to start breastfeeding and then for whatever reason their feeding choices change, I didn't say they failed to breastfeed, that they changed their feeding choices for whatever reason. Language is so important, isn't it? So they're the ones that were more likely to suffer from postnatal depression. Mm. You know, a woman that that makes a a positive choice, I use the words advisedly, to formula feed and and formula feed throughout, were less likely to suffer from postnatal depression. Because they made a positive choice. Because they made a positive choice, which becomes increasingly difficult in a context where formula companies are using their influence to affect the cultural malay. The article that, that we posted on the website about um, images in the birth room, yeah. that has relevance because in the, the interview on the radio, they speak about the prevalence of bottle feeding images across the media. You know, that we don't see breastfeeding women ordinarily in soaps, on the television, in film, but we do see bottle feeding images. 
and the impact that that has it's like it's like formula company product placement yeah the lancet article clearly sets it out as you say as a as a health issue and professor pat hodinett on women's hour made this point that this is the responsibility of everyone in society including the media and i hope that was a pointed comment at them for having somebody yeah. like um claire byam cook their choice of yeah. in inverted commas, expert, yeah. to talk about breastfeeding just because she doesn't believe it's the be-all and end-all. Yeah. I'm saying that dryly. I hope that comes across. Those of us in the profession know that there's pressure to raise initiation rates. Women are considered to have initiated breastfeeding sometimes if a baby even, you know, licks the breast or looks towards the breast. Yeah. So I, I just think it's it, the initiation rates having raised is not necessarily... Um, the positive indicator that we should be looking at. I I really agree with you because I know locally, you know, in in our health area, the initiation rate is about 81%, which Mm. is ever so slightly higher than the national average. But we're down to 50% by two weeks. Yeah, when when professional input is at its most intense. And and yet not. And well, we know it's not. But in in theory, it's when the input from midwife in particular uh, should be its most focused and intent. You know, and we've got another article on our page that suggests that women going home early is not serving them in terms of their health and well-being. Although, you know, I'm sure uh, midwives would say, well, surely women would be better off at home. True, actually. And I often hear that story of it was just really hard in the hospital. And then eventually we got home and oh, it was so much better because I was in my own environment, my own chair, my own time. Yeah. And food in the kitchen. No, and, and intuitively, that I, I guess that that would seem true for most. But for some women, you know, being asked to leave hospital very soon, and let's be honest, it's probably not a, a holistic assessment that's decided this woman will be better off at home. It's oh my god, we need that bed. Yeah, you know. So tell me about the free lunch. Well, the, the suggestion. Uh, in Jane's article is there is no such thing as a free lunch you know formula companies pharmaceutical companies you know they don't sponsor events out of the goodness of their heart there is always a commercial advantage to be gained their influence on the professional birth community uh, you know it's Machiavellian and it's insidious to have a midwifery of the year event sponsored by a formula company Surely, although I'm told it's not, but surely that's in violation of the International Code of Marketing of Breast. Even if it's such... not, it's common sense. You know, I, I, I guess the editors of said magazine would say that they couldn't run the event without sponsorship. Well, don't run the event then. It's worth mentioning at this point, we don't have Natalie, our student midwife, this um, episode simply because of time issues, time constraints. Um Natalie thought that we dropped her because she was nominated for an award at this point. Oh, goodness, no. That's not true. No, it isn't. You know, anything that sets woman against woman, group against group, is to be despised. And it's it's an ancient technique to divide people, to to disconnect people, and uh, to to, kind of like propagate a particular uh, way of seeing the world. And I think, you know, I personally stand against anything that separates people. People should be in a position to make as free a choice as possible, but we don't have that context when it comes to feeding, the choices around feeding our babies at the moment. It's It's not a level playing field. Absolutely. 
So congratulations, Natalie. Congratulations for the nomination. And uh, that certainly wasn't in our thinking at all. No. Well, I, you know, we had mentioned in, par in passing the article that looked at the depiction of birth in social media. So this is midwiferyjournal.com, birthroom images, what they tell us about childbirth, a discourse analysis of birthrooms in developed countries. And uh, she uses a methodology called social semiotics. So that's meaning making, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it's, it's a branch of the field of semiotics, which investigates human signifying practices in specific social and cultural circumstances, and which tries to explain meaning making as a social practice. Semiotics is the science of the life of signs in society. Mm. Very interesting. You know, it's how culture becomes shaped in, in many ways. It's how, it's how a group becomes, uh, makes meaning, you know, on the basis of the, the images and symbols that it's exposed to on a day-to-day -day basis. And while this is, is quite a small study, it's 40 images, but, it, um, you know, who, who would pay for anyone to spend the, the time and money on doing anything bigger yeah. when it basically does tell us what we already know but it's nice to have something that illustrates it yeah literally illustrates it so yeah, i mean the, the centricity of the bed in many of these images and the prevalence of machinery it will resonate with many people listening to this you know the bed yeah. often as a woman walks into a, a birthing room in a hospital is centric years ago as a newly qualified midwife walking into the room and the bed was immediately pushed into the corner um, immediately i would immediately do that um I, I remember way back then where the head of midwifery on the on the labor ward inverted commas would give handover and she'd say room 16 Marks on the bed, woman's on the floor. <laughs> the, the, the environmental factors, you know, in the room are just so important, you know. Mm -hmm. Along with evolving midwifery practices, you know, like it, it was common when I was practicing regularly that if a woman wanted a vaginal examination and there was some kind of indication for it, you know, for, for me to, to be able to do a vaginal examination in any position she was in, you know, so if she was in the pool, you could do the examination in the pool. If she was on the edge of the pool, you could do it there. If she was on the bed, you could do it there. If she was standing up. And Virginia mentions that in her article, how she feels that skill is, is, is gradually being lost. I don't want to preempt Virginia too much, but, you know, she, she suggests it takes quite a lot of courage to develop those skills. I'll I tell you what, Karen, let's, let's have a listen to Virginia now, shall we? I'm Virginia Howes, I'm an independent midwife and I work outside of the NHS providing continuity of care to women that choose to employ me. Great, how long have you been an independent midwife? Uh, seven, I'm in my 17th year now. This episode, you know, we're, we're looking at uh, twin birth and particularly interested in your experience of supporting a woman uh, who's chosen a twin birth at home. Can you talk much about that? Okay, and I did count them up a little while ago, but I think we've got probably around eight to ten sets um, of twins that, that we've supported. What, what, what are some of the unique challenges that come up for those women? Because let's, let's be honest, a, a woman exercising her, her right to choose can sometimes be a challenge when it's a singleton present, uh, pregnancy. Yeah, let alone twins, yeah. 
Well, our first challenge is to find someone that will support her, isn't it? And to somebody who will take a step back from the, oh, that's dangerous, you know, that whole um, knee-jerk reaction. The guidelines, the NICE guidelines and the RCOG guidelines actually can be quite reassuring if you've got what I call uh, one baby times two. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. (laughs) Because all of the risks, if you break down the guideline and you look at the guideline, Actually, all of the all of the monitoring and all of the um, screening and the what they recommend. So they recommend sort of like four weekly scans and from this point and all of that is because they are looking at the high risk twins, like twin to twin transfusion. And do you, do you know what I mean? Identical twins and all that stuff. If you've only got one baby times two, in other words non-identical twins separate sacs separate placentas all of that doesn't really apply so if you've got two babies growing well as individuals and they're in a good position what what's the problem you know it's just you're just doing it again the next time you know you having a but like having a singleton and then oh there's another one and i know that sounds really stupid everybody knows that but it's if you read the guidelines you're like well actually this don't apply to you because you're not having this problem oh i got it so you're making a distinction between one baby plus one and a pregnancy where it's monozygotic yeah absolutely because 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 that's where most of the risk lies so so if i'm looking after a woman and she's got non-identical twins separate sacs separate membranes um then you know i'll take i'll i'll say to her in the bracket of twins, you're really low risk. So it, it, it puts a different take on it, you know? Would a woman having non-identical twins still be at a, a higher risk relative to having one baby? Well, you've got two. If you cross the road twice, you're more likely to get run over than if you cross the road once. <laughs> yeah, cool. This is how I look at it, right? But if you're going to have fetal distress, you've got double the chance of that happening. Not double the chance with one of the babies. No, I get it. Overall. But... Overall, because you've got two of them. So, yes, it does make it a high-risk uh, pregnancy than having one baby. But at the end of the day, you're going to have more babies. At the end of the day, you're going to have two healthy babies instead of one so you're doubling the the wonderful outcomes as well as doubling the risk if you know got, what i mean got it i've I, I got to be honest in my experience of working in the nhs I, uh, often you'd spend a lot of time explaining the evidence and the choices uh, and then a, then often they'll speak to an obstetrician and the obstetrician's view tends to trump yours yeah but so therefore what i usually do is i usually talk to women before they see the obstetricians and say you know the obstetrician if there's a one in a million chance that there's something uh, going to go wrong the obstetrician will presume you're that one in a million well we want to presume you're one of the 9999 so you know that that's how the difference is the way we look at it you know so normally i do lots and lots of um i suppose it's the same as when i worked on the labor ward i like to catch the women before they get caught by somebody else so that they don't get um all the negative stuff you know okay the last set of twins that i looked after was the best it could be and she wasn't at home and if we could make sure this happened at every single twin birth it would be absolutely phenomenal she was planning a home birth and then uh, we got our cut off of 36 weeks okay so i was happy to attend her as long as she hit 36 weeks she was 35 weeks and three days or four days something like that and you've got to have a cut off you can't say oh well it's only three days do you know what I mean you've got to have a cut off she'd chosen to have some scans 
but not all of them. She had one, I think, at 28 weeks, then another one at 36 weeks, just to make sure they were growing well. And they were growing well. Just in, She went had one visit with the obstetrician. And what we did is we set up a plan of care just in case she didn't end up having the babies at home. So we went to speak to supervisor of midwives. And the supervisor of midwives initially was... Well, what we like to do is we like to have them in theatre because of this and because of... And I sat there in the middle of the two of them. And when the lady said, well, I didn't really want that. So I then said, well, actually, so if she is refusing to do that, what can you offer her? So she's like, okay, well, we have got another room we could offer you. Okay, let's say we'll accept that room. So, okay. And what we like to do also is we like to continually monitor twins um, because of the higher risk of blah, 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 blah. So the woman's like, well, I don't want to have got those straps on me. You know, I don't want to be. So I would interrupt and say, OK, so she's saying no to that. What can you you know, what can we do? So actually, in the end, she got a plan of care set up where all of the things she didn't want weren't going to happen. That was signed off by everybody, signed off by all the supervisors and put in her notes. Actually, when she, we did go to hospital, when she went into labour, spontaneous labour. She had one vaginal examination, and the only reason she had that was because they did actually say on triage that they didn't, they wouldn't put her into a room until they could confirm labour. I mean, that was the only thing that I was annoyed about because you could see this blooming woman was labouring. Do you know what I mean? Doesn't make so, a lot of sense. So she was five centimetres dilated. We went to triage, and that was it. She went in a pool of water. The lights were dim. She never had any constant monitoring. There was just me and the NHS midwife in the room. I helped with, with using my sonic aid. We had two sonic aids listening at the same time so we could confirm there were two fetal hearts. Most of the time, an independent midwife is treated not much more than the woman's sister. Do you know what I mean? Not allowed to even pass her a drink of water, let alone help the other midwife. So I was in my element that the other midwife was treating me as a colleague and an equal. Um, the woman actually got out of the pool and um, then decided to stay out the pool had the first baby on her hands and knees on the floor and then had the second baby. She'd, then she got up on the bed to cuddle the baby and the second baby just basically fell out 10 minutes later. It was the loveliest. It was a home birth in hospital. And I, I personally think that if we could get that for all women rather than in theatre, constantly monitored, hundreds of people walking around, bright lights, Sinto as soon as the first one's born. I mean, what's that all about? And it could be done. It could be done for so many more women. Another set of twins we looked after, um, they happened to come a little bit too fast. Well, not too fast. They came in their own speed. We were probably a little bit too slow. <laughs> and um, one, as uh, walked in the room, the baby was being born sacrum posterior. Now, everybody says that sacrum posterior breach baby can't be born. So there was the twin come in sacrum posterior and came out beautifully. <laughs> so had we, had, we, had we got there a little bit earlier and maybe found that twin, first twin sacrum posterior, we'd have probably transferred her to hospital. But as we walked in the door, the baby, it was a very fast birth. As we walked in the door, the baby was being born and we're like, Oh, my God, look! Wow, was she upright? The woman was lay on all fours across the sofa and the baby was coming out with its back towards us. Wow. Do you know, I'm embarrassed to say that the only breech birth I was have been at in the whole of my midwifery career was a woman I was told to go and see on the way to hospital. When I got there, she was pushing. And when the waters broke, it was breech. The baby was breech. And uh, she gave birth standing up looking out the window. 
Yeah. And, and I remember thinking, I remember thinking, oh God, what's the mechanism? What's the mechanism? You know, and, and the baby was just born. Yeah, you don't. When they come easy, when they come easy, they come easy. And I've had I've had some really beautiful, easy breech births. That's not to take anything away from when there's difficulties. There are difficulties, you know. But then that's the same with any birth. You know, Absolutely. if you get a shoulder dystocia, you know, it's no good. It's no good us all going, oh, baby. It's just they pop out because they do, majority of them. They come out beautifully. It's no good being frightened to say that because of the odd one's going to get stuck with a shoulder dystocia. And it's the same. We know that, you know, some babies will will have a problem with the with the head and everything. We know that. Um, and um, But the vast majority of them will just pedal the way I call it pedaling they pedal the way out you know with their arms arms and legs going like like the clappers to to get themselves born yeah oh I've had one in the back of an ambulance on a snowy uh, lane uh, <laughs> yeah, that, that was fun fantastic yeah hey, in terms of women choosing to have um, twins at home Mm. From a midwifery point of view, are you? Is there anything in particular that you're looking for in order to make, you know, to to inform a woman about choices she has? Should things not be going physiologically? It would be the same, Mark, for a singleton birth. If you if you had a, a problem with a fetal heart, if you had a problem with bleeding, if you had a problem with her blood pressure, you know, it's all exactly the same. What potentially could be something that would lead to you having to transfer? Waited four and a half hours for the second baby once, and then she ended up going in and having um, a C-section for the second baby. But there was nothing wrong with the second baby. Um, just wasn't coming. In the olden days, would have been one where the midwife went home and said, call me when it starts again. <laughs> you know, so if you've got a fetal heart that didn't pick up, majority of the time in, in, in the medical way of doing things, then they're not brave enough to, to wait. You have to really hold your nerve because the the fetal heart always goes down after the first twin well i say always i hate this because i'm gonna go no it don't always um but the fetal heart tends to go down with the second twin and you know down to about 90 then it hovers round about 90 and gradually comes up slowly slowly uh, and then but people lose their nerve don't they They're, oh my god 900 you know and if you're at home it, it it's not so easy to to hold your nerve yeah, and, yeah because you cannot you i, I know ctgs are, are not a, a great guide to fetal well-being but mm. you, you can pick up reactivity i think you can with auscultation as well i'm convinced you can i suppose it's what you're used to isn't it i'm so used to a doppler and a, and a um pinard but let's be totally honest about it, it it's not going to be an exact science is it no of course it's not doesn't donald gibb even say that if it's been okay up until a certain point you you've got a certain amount of time um, that a baby can withstand being low, but that's not that low anyway, is it? With a, with a heart of ninety, they'd, they'd they'd wait longer than that to do a cesarean. But normally, within a few minutes, like five minutes or so, it slowly makes its way back up again. So I think that you know, in 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 hospitals, they sort of rush it a bit because it does. They see this going down, and, that, and they know about this going down, but they they rush it. 
I always remember Mary Cronk. Mary Cronk told me, taught me much of what I know about twin births. And she says, hold your nerve. That fetal heart will come up. If that baby's been healthy throughout, it will come back up again. Just hold your nerve. It's where it's suddenly got all that space. It needs to right itself and come down once it's come down and ready to be born. And the second ones, they just slip out. The women hardly know they've been born. Wow. Mary Cronk, the birth goddess, as far as I'm yeah. concerned. Well, she was my mentor when I was first an independent midwife, so... We talk about holding your nerve, but that takes courage in the current climate. I suppose it does take courage, but I think it takes courage to do a lot of things that midwives should be doing and they haven't got the courage to do it. You know, I mean, even now, after all my experience, sometimes when I'm leaning over a pool with a woman and smiling at her, you know, I'm smiling at her, but things are going through my mind and I'm thinking all my midwifery thoughts about, okay, so if this happens, that's what I'm going to do. You know, reminding ourselves of what we have to do in, if the shit hits the fan. And that I, I'm always ready for a problem um, and waiting to, to, not waiting for the problem, but I'm, no. I'm aware, do you know what I mean? But I'm, I've got a smile fixed on my face, but then I'm saying to myself, Virginia, you don't have to think like that. This is normal. Why wouldn't this be normal? Why wouldn't this be? Why would that problem occur that you're just thinking about? You know, so I'm I'm aware that problem could happen. I'm aware that she could hemorrhage any second. But I'm also uh, reassuring myself at the same time that that's not going to happen. And that's about being brave and facing your 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 fears and and calming your fears isn't it yeah. yeah and it's a key to learning hey thanks for taking the time i got i want to finish off with a couple of questions if, if, if someone's listening to this and they are contemplating uh home birth for uh twins um what, what would be your top tips be open-minded because you can't actually decide say where that place of birth is going to be until you know that you've come to the end of a healthy, well pregnancy where your babies have grown and, and are healthy. So, you know, I mean, that goes with a singleton, but obviously double that with, a, <laughs> with, a, with, with twins. So just keep open-minded. And the most important thing with any birth, have someone who supports your every wish. Because if, if no one supports you, you, you're finished, aren't you? And also, I, I just don't, think that we should be focusing so much on pushing home births rather than pushing continuity of care because we know that if we push continuity of care what will follow home birth so i think if only we put all our efforts into promoting uh, continuity of care with a known and trusted caregiver we know that all the good things about birth will just automatically follow. Yeah, the, ev the evidence is clear about known, known carer. Yeah, that's right. Before I say goodbye to you, could, could you uh, just tell people a little bit about your book? Yeah, my book is available on Amazon or directly from me. If you get in touch with me, I can send you a signed copy. What's it called? Oh, sorry, The Baby's Coming. It's my memoirs all about how I became the midwife I am. And a lot of the cases that I've looked after, a lot of them are unusual ones or touching ones or sad ones or ha happy ones, funny ones, all different types of stories. But with each story comes learning. So you learn without realising it. Well, I, I've read the book and I, and I can thoroughly recommend it for sure. You, have you really, Mark? Yeah, yeah. I have read your book, yeah. I'm impressed. And although I haven't read yours yet, I've actually had three 
uh, dads that have that I've recommended it to and all have loved it. Oh, that's cool. Where, how can people get in contact with you? Give us your web, your web page address as okay, well. Okay, it's www.kentmidwifferypractice.co.uk. I'm also on Facebook and Twitter, but I'm, I'm uh, as Facebook, I am just Virginia Howes. And on Twitter, I'm at Midwife Virginia. Great. Thanks, Virginia, for being That's willing right. to talk to us. Okay, Bye. then. Bye-bye. Bye. I really enjoyed listening to your chat with Virginia. A lot of interesting stuff to say and some great stories. I'd love to have her on just to tell us stories. Yeah. I, I, you know, I love Virginia's point about, you know, two babies rather than one and mm. the implications that has for increasing the likelihood of some things occurring. So it was one baby plus one baby rather than double trouble. Just want to underline Virginia's courage and her willingness to put herself out there. Yeah, it was very. She's very assured in what she does. Hey, Mars is always is always refreshing to be around. There's another powerful woman with a a very clear message, and her workshops get great reviews. I absolutely loved speaking to Mars, and uh, again, would could have done a whole hour of just listening to her. Let's listen to her now. I'm talking to Mars Lord, who's um, agreed to chat with us about her experience as a doula. And I think, Mars, you're a specialist with twins. Is that correct? That's correct. It's a huge passion of mine and uh, as a twin mum myself. So, yes, I love working with um, multiple mamas. I became a doula when my twins were about 18 months old. And the more births I did, the more I felt for women who had multiple births who had twins because the path that we get sent down right from the beginning is quite a hard one with a lot of negativity attached to it and so I started to really just hone in and specialize in on twin birth one of my favorites if I can have a favorite it was a physiological birth of twins in a high on a highly medicalized labor ward they wanted her to have a cesarean that was sort of their bottom line and we put forward her case but ended up going up as high as the ceo of the hospital trust to get her birth plan signed off saying that she wanted to have as much as possible the physiological birth of these babies with her bottom line being if there's a medical reason not to then absolutely medical advice have the cesarean and um I remember after the birth, and it was beautiful, the second baby was born in the call. They were both born within sort of seven minutes of each other. Um, midwives just popping in or catching me in the corridor to say that they'd never had anything like that before in the hospital and how incredibly amazing it was. And there were a lot of new midwives on, young midwives on. So the senior midwife asked if it was if we if they had permission to share the story because she wanted to encourage the other midwives to know that it doesn't have to be a cesarean or a huge huge medical issue so that's one of, that's my favorite I think yes I can understand why um my I have a friend with twins and she also um had a physio- physiological birth in theater and that was the compromise they were, they were like well you can try but it has to be in theatre just in case. That word try is just yeah. motive and irritating and annoying because it 
instantly takes away mum's or can do her faith in her ability to birth her babies and it says you probably won't be able to do this mm. we'll give you a little go and then we'll swoop in and we'll do the hard work and actually when it comes to twin mums that starts pretty much from the moment they discover they're pregnant with twins yeah. So the sonographer is likely to say something like, oh, I bet you've been really, really sick. And some twin mums aren't sick a day in their pregnancy, much like some singleton mums aren't. Then you sort of go back to see the midwife who tells you you're high risk and you need to see the consultant. So you go onto the consultant's team. And at the very beginning, they say, oh, no, 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 we won't worry about mode of uh, birth just yet. You know, we've got we've got time for that. However... There is a, a high likelihood that you'll have a cesarean. And so you think, well, OK, I'm probably going to have a cesarean. But, you know, my consultant's really nice and he said that we don't have to worry about it for a few weeks yet. Then you go home and you start telling people that you're expecting twins and everyone's friends, neighbours, doctors, boyfriends, wives, somebody has got twins and it's hell. And then um, you talk to people that start telling you you won't be able to breastfeed them. You won't be able to. You'll obviously have to have a cesarean. You you'll have your hands full, and it's double trouble and everything. And then by the time the twin mum gets to thinking about birthing her babies, she's already started from a, a position of absolute negativity. Yeah, this is one of the things that really really bites me about the whole twin thing the negativity and I think this double trouble is coming from outside it comes from everywhere it, it comes from friends and family and it comes from the medical professionals the healthcare professionals and it's sad that it comes from the healthcare professionals because at what stage do we allow our multiple mamas to just enjoy being pregnant. They're not going to get negativity from me. Realism they'll get from me. I'm not a, all bets for we're definitely having the most amazing physiological birth. Yeah. But they're not going to get negativity from me. I'm going to tell them how wonderful it is to have twins. And I'm going to be real and I'm going to say, yeah, it can be hard in the first year, but I think it's hard with a singleton baby mm. in the first year. So if you if you get your support system right, if you get your information right and you know what it is you're looking for actually there's no reason why it shouldn't be an enjoyable year as well you know and I do remember opening that bottle of champagne on their first birthday so not to celebrate their birthdays but to celebrate the fact that I survived a year I was like <laughs> yay go me brilliant <laughs> yeah that um I do antenatal breastfeeding sessions for NCT and when I have twins parents in with all the singleton parents yeah. Um, antenatally and they look so scared and they almost look like well I don't know why we're here because everyone's told us we're not going to be able to breastfeed and they want to as much as every other mother wants to yeah. and I kind of labour the point that actually two babies twice as much milk gonna be easy. I actually don't think that breastfeeding is difficult I think hiccups and difficulties present themselves and it's what we do at that point and if you're a twin mum one of the reasons why breastfeeding is so very hard is because right at the beginning apart from the assumption by the, the vast majority of people that you're going to be unable to do it including me being at a birth with a woman who'd breastfed her first child through the age of three and she just breastfed one twin and was 
in the middle of feeding the second twin when the woman from the Multiple Births Association came in and said her first words were, don't feel bad about giving the babies a bottle because people find this hard to do. So no congratulations, well done, but an immediate, you're not going to be able to do this, let me tell you how to save yourself. Uh, you know, midwives that tell you you're not going to be able to do it. Very few twins get out of hospital without having several bottles a day of formula poured down them because they're small. They're small. We've got to make them bigger. We've got to make them bigger. Well, they're small because they're twins. Presumably they've been squished and in there. And sometimes they're small just because they're baby. You know, I mean, I've supported women that have 41 weeks with their twins. I've supported women who've had twins that are over seven pounds. If that was a singleton baby, no one would make an issue of it. But And there's an assumption that twins are going to be exactly the same. And they're not. Even the identicals, there's a, sometimes there's this slight discrepancy between their weights. But it doesn't matter whether it's a big or small discrepancy. The smaller twin is instantly pounced on and blood sugar's taken because, oh, my God, this baby's smaller than the other one. And it amazes me when I see a sort of seven-pounder having blood sugars taken because the bigger twin was seven pounds five. There's a lack of understanding as to what twins are. And that's not to say that I don't think that the doctors and paediatricians should do their thing but I think hold on let's remember that these are two individuals and not treat them as one whole hmm. because they're two babies who've shared a womb and sometimes shared a sac and a placenta but they're not one whole twin to twin um, tra transfusion syndrome is a very big thing and I don't uh, belittle it at all and I think it needs to be watched for but if the babies have come out and the babies there's bare, there's not much sort of between them let's look at them as two individual babies whilst those two babies are sharing one sack and one placenta of course we want to keep an eye on them in the womb to make sure that one isn't taking from the other but let's not make an assumption that all twins the twins with the separate sacs and the separate placentas are the same as those and let's see when they come out. Let's let's have a look at them. So why isn't this baby feeding? Is it a compression issue? Is it a tongue issue? Is it simply mum and baby's lack of experience of breastfeeding together? So let's start there and let's not push the panic button because it's two babies. That must have um, quite long life repercussions, some implication for how um, people treat the the babies generally you're saying these are two individual people not yeah. one unit I have a, a friend who's a grown-up twin and he gets really quite upset when he sees um, twins dressed identically it really bothers him yeah I think you know as mums we each do the things we do that never ever appealed to me but I I have friends with twins who um loved the whole dressing them the same some who started dressing them differently but as their children got older the children decided to dress the same mm -hmm. sometimes it's practicality yeah. you're in a shop and you don't want to spend three days choosing different outfits so you just grab some outfits and then you get home you go oh crap I've bought four red t-shirts and four blue jeans well there we go I'm not going back to the <laughs> shop everyone's gonna wear the same yeah and friends bring you gifts I was amazed I've got boy girl twins I was amazed at how many people bought the matching outfits <laughs> and that very awful putrid pink and bleh, oh. bleh. 
I can remember walking around town with my friend's twins in the pushchair and she going into a shop and be staying outside because you do with a twin buggy, don't you? And people approaching me all the time, and this must have been her constant experience, people approaching me, looking at these boy-girl twins dressed in pink and blue and saying, are they identical? Yes, though, of course, you see, you have to be careful because in an incredibly rare instance, apart from the genitalia, obviously, if the egg splits pretty much immediately when it still has the XXY chromosome, you can get identical boy-girl twins. Can you? I had no idea. But it's incredibly rare. It's incredibly rare. So rare that it, it's almost barely worth a mention. I called mine Fat Boy Slim because he was £5.14 and she was £4.5. And um, being told that they couldn't possibly be twins because he was bigger than she was. And I'm not saying that people on this planet are stupid. I'm just going to leave that to your own interpretation. <laughs> Walking down the road as a twin mum is blooming difficult, you know, because everyone has an opinion on what your twins are or should be or throws themselves into your buggy and hardly anyone ever looks at you and says oh congratulations well done they go oh my god you look exhausted you're like thanks I thought I was looking really good today yeah but you see if you imagine if that's what it's like post-birth what is it like during pregnancy so during pregnancy, you get told continually, you're high risk, you're high risk, you're high risk, you're high risk. There's no definition of this high risk. So the message that goes into the brain is, oh, my God, my babies are going to die because I'm so high risk. Someone's got to die in this scenario. So, so you're left for months, the first months of your pregnancy, thinking, what does high risk actually mean? And what does it mean for me and my twins? So when someone says, you know, your risks of stillbirth double at a certain stage, you don't think whatever the percentage is now times two, your mind instantly goes to 50%, a one in two chance. You know, it's not that that's what you've been told, but that's the message that goes into your brain. So at, at the very early stages of your twin pregnancy, you're, you know, you've already discovered that the chances of you birthing your baby vaginally are slim to none. You know for a fact, even though it's not a fact, that your babies will come early. Not that sort of 50% of twins come sort of prior 32 weeks and that a higher percentage will be born before 37 weeks, but just that all, this is what you hear, all babies are going to be born early. My brain explodes whenever I am told by a client that their consultant has said, we're going to induce you on this date at sort of 36 weeks because twins come early. And what's the other reason for inducing me? Well, twins come early. And I don't understand the logic of that. If twins come early, why is there a need to induce? Yeah, they're apparently coming early because you're inducing. Well, quite. And, you know, and then twins can't be born after 38 weeks. Well, why not? Because twins come early. And from about 32, 33 weeks, uh, consultants are starting to talk about the mode of birth, the way that your babies are going to come into this world. And this is how you're going to labour and this is how we're going to treat you in labour. And when you say, well, actually, you know, 
I don't actually want an epidural unless I want an epidural. Well, you need an epidural because if you don't have an epidural, what are we going to do when we need to get the second twin out by cesarean? So now you're thinking, oh, my God, you mean I could have a vaginal and a cesarean birth all at the same time? So I've gone through all of that with the first to have a cesarean birth. And I say to my clients, well, ask what their rates of that are in the hospital and what the rates of that are nationally so that you get more of an idea of how likely it is to happen. And what are the pros and the cons of having an epidural? And the answer can't be, well, it's twins. There has to be more of an answer than that. But when multiple mums or twin mums particularly, and triplet mums, you know, ask, well, what are the risks? Well, it's because there are multiples. But that can't be the answer. So ask the question, what are the risks? Now, some women are going to want to have an epidural because they already know that having twins is an absolute nightmare and they're never going to, you know, and it's not going to happen the way that they dream it's going to happen because everyone's told them it's not. So let's just hand myself over. Let's just have the epidural. Let's have the continual fetal monitoring and let's have the induction. Let's just do, do, do what people say. And that's fine because if you've made an informed choice, then the choice should be yours. But a coerced choice where, no, you need to do that, otherwise we'll end up giving you a cesarean for the second one. And if there's no time, we're going to give you a general anaesthetic. So there's nothing wrong with the fact there, but the intent when you use that language and you say those things is a different thing. And often twin mums are coerced into doing things because, well, if you don't do that, this will happen. Mm. And if you get a good consultant, they'll say, well, this might happen, however. So there's no there's no exploring the fact that it might not happen and balancing things out. So be, be a realist. Say, look, these are the risks of you having a prem baby and needing to know about NICU and SCABOO. These are the risks of cesarean with multiple births. These are the risks of having a vaginal and a caesarean birth. These are the things that could possibly happen. However, these are the things that could go well and could go right. These are the joyous things about having twins. So talk realistically. Don't, as one consultant that I know and will not name, and is probably not the only one who does it, don't put a box of tissues in front of a, a twin mum when she comes to talk about birth and say, you're going to need these and then eviscerate her and her choices. Mm. I'm really glad we chose to do twins because it's all the things that we say about birth in general times two. All the extra pressure and all the extra assumption of risk and just not really talking about it in a, a way that trusts and respects mothers to make decisions. I think it's because there's there's so much de-skilling of our glorious midwives and they have very little experience of physiological birth of twins. I meet midwives and I've had more experience of physiological birth of twins than they have. I find it heartbreaking that so many midwives don't get to see things like that. And I'm not saying that complications don't arise and I'm not saying that every single twin birth is going to be like that beautiful physiological birth. But I feel sad that so many midwives haven't seen it, you know. And I think I do think it, it's because once we say the word risk, it's like, right, that's it. There, there is absolutely nothing about this 
that can let itself unfold and I believe there's a wide variation in the definition normal but we've come to the place where we no longer recognize the variations of normal and anything that's not textbook is high risk and dangerous and we act prophylactically yeah yeah I think you're right about that so the thing that I most want to say about twin birth the thing I most want to say is look yes it's two babies and yes it's a higher risk but let's be careful of the language that we use when we talk to multiple parents, let's ensure not to steal their power away from them. And let's make sure that they are making informed decisions and they're giving informed consent. When you start to think of twins as a double blessing and not as a handful, it's easier to work with your twin mums, your triplet mums. You know, you don't have to ignore the risks or hide the risks, but share them with love and with compassion, but talk about the blessings as well and talk about the things that can go right and allow them to make their decision because I have yet to meet anyone who needs to hear that oft-repeated phrase, but we want the best for your babies. I'm guessing that nobody wants better for their babies than those parents who have come to see you for support in birthing their babies. Mm, Damn right. (laughs) Thanks so much for talking to us today, Mars. Do you want to give out any contact details or website? Oh, yes, I'm a busy bee. So I'm Mars Lord Mammy Doula, M-A-M-M-Y. I am a founder member of Birth in the City, your favourite London doula collective. And you can find us on Instagram at Birth in the City. I run Loving the Multiple Mamas workshops. My website is www mammydoula.co.uk I'm on Instagram and Twitter under the same name and I love 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 what I do and I'm a very proud member of Doula UK the largest organization for doulas over here so there you go thank you very much bye bye again we'd love to hear your views Tell us what you think on facebook.com slash Sprogcast or Twitter at Sprogcast. Now, we should probably mention um, things coming up from our lovely sponsors, Pinter and Martin. They've got some things coming up, including a colouring book for adults out in April, the Peaceful Pregnancy Colouring Book. I've seen some of the pictures. I do want it. And they're opening their new multi-purpose venue in South London called Ephra Space, a multi-purpose venue dedicated to pregnancy, birth and parenting education, which will, among many other things, host classes for fathers-to-be by someone called Mark, I don't know how to say this, Harris, Harris, Harry? Uh, Mark Harris, I think. (laughs) Um, Sounds a bit bonkers to me. (laughs) Our next publication in the Why It Matters series is the Why Your Baby Sleep Matters, followed soon by Why Baby Wearing Matters. Mm. And the whole baby wearing attachment parenting subject matter is going to be what we're going to be doing for our next episode. And it's also worth mentioning that Sprogcast listeners can get an additional 10% off on Pinter and Martin's website, pinterandmartin.com, by entering the code SPROGCAST. That's fabulous. There's lots of exciting things going on. I'm, I'm focusing my work more towards birthing for blokes purely, so I'm excited about the launch of Ephra Space. So now is the time in our podcast when we endorse some interesting things. What have you got today, Mark? Well, I've got a couple of books, one by Dr. Lewis Walpert. The book is actually called Why Can't a Woman Be More Like a Man? 
And the subtitle is The Evolution of Sex and Gender. He wanted the title to be Why Can't a Man Be More Like a Woman? Uh, and in that book, he explores uh, the evolutionary development of the male of the species and the female of the species. It kind of underlines a lot of the stuff I talk about in my work. And it's a short but thorough read. Thoroughly recommended. Sure. Uh, the other book, in a similar vein, if you like, a bit of a bigger read, Yuval Noah Harari. It's just called Sapiens, and it's a brief history of humankind. And again, it charts um, our geopolitical history and our um, evolutionary biological history and puts the kind of flow of history into an evolutionary perspective. A longer read very well written so they are my endorsements and they're both on our facebook page mine is something that you put on facebook and i was blown away by um yeah. the spoken word poem by kayla q questions i've been asked as a midwife i looked at it and thought oh mark he weeps at everything and then i listened to it oh, the power oh, of yeah. it i just I bristling i was just bristling after it we both had a strong reaction to this it, it just gave me goosebumps yeah, very moving, especially that that quote at the end. Yeah. We are the granddaughters of the witches they forgot to burn. I'd love to make contact with her and get permission to put that on some Sprogcast T-shirts. <laughs> yes. I'd like to see you Wouldn't wearing you? that T-shirt, Mark. I think you hey. should be in Well, I can't. You know, I always <laughs> say that I, I you know, I, 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 I experienced the world through a masculine, you know, neurophysiology and endobiology. So I have no idea what it's like to be a woman, right? Yeah. I, I get that. I, I truly get it, but I am so in sympathy with the passion and with the themes of what she said. And uh, I, I, you know, I moved right now, just kind of remembering seeing it for the first time. If you haven't seen it, watch it <laughs> and uh, and enjoy being moved and inspired. I think it's getting close to the end of this episode of Sprogcast. We hope you'll join us for the next one, which is going to be all about attachment parenting. And if you have any suggestions or comments, get in touch via Facebook or Twitter. That's facebook.com slash Sprogcast and at Sprogcast on Twitter. Thanks for listening. Goodbye. Goodbye. You've been listening to Sprogcast with Mark Harris and Karen Hall. Sprogcast is supported by Pinter and Martin. For all your pregnancy, birth, breastfeeding and parenting reading, check out pinterandmartin.com and enter the code Sprogcast for an additional 10% off. Sprogcast is produced by Karen Hall with technical assistance by Pete Hall and our branding is provided by Nick Hilditch.